Hello, and welcome to The Powers That Be, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I am not Peter Hamby. This is Teddy Schleifer sitting in for Peter, who is apparently on a party bus in Mexico. Really unclear if that's true, but everyone is telling me that. Many smart people are saying it. And welcome to The Powers That Be. First up today, I'm talking with Matt Bellany about the canceled Golden Globes, which apparently happened, though really unclear. No one can confirm it. And then we're going to be talking about Mackenzie Scott, who is the ex-wife of Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, and how she is shaking up the world of philanthropy. Later on, Dylan Byers is going to swing by. Dylan has been talking with insiders at Fox, MSNBC, and our former employer, CNN. And he's going to tell us what the future of cable news might look like. These are the sort of great conversations you can only have with expert inside reporters, people like Dylan and Matt, who really know what's going on. So settle in for the powers that be. We are joined now by Matthew Bellany. Does anyone call you Matthew? Is that is that name everybody uh, uses? My mom when she's upset, and it's my byline is Matthew. So I just kind of keep that alive, but most people call me Matt. Mm, my, my, my byline is Theodore, which gives me another like 10 to 15 years. Um, I thought at some point in my life I would age out of Teddy, but you know, the haters, the haters are going to hate. Um, so Theodore and Matthew here. Um, Matthew, I, I want to talk to you about this strange award season. I think both of us probably thought there would be some normal Something more resembling 2019. We're sitting here in, in, in the throes of uh, wave nine of, of COVID, it feels like. The SAG Award nominations came out earlier today. We're recording this on Wednesday. It seems like HBO, Netflix, House of Gucci, a bunch of kind of the, 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 the big expected winners are being nominated. But this past weekend was the Golden Globes, um, which you have been reporting on this basically uh, ceaseless saga involving the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, NBC. I, I, I admit I did not watch the Golden Globes uh, or, or I couldn't have watched it. But I didn't pay any attention to it. Tell me what it was like over the weekend when the Golden Globes allegedly happened, though I'm not, I'm not sure we can confirm it. Yeah, you didn't watch the Golden Globes because they there was nothing to watch. They literally ceased to exist on NBC. They were replaced by a football game, which I'm sure you did watch. I did. I did. This is Sunday night. This is the, probably the greatest game uh, in NFL Week 18 history. Yeah. So if you were not paying attention to the football game or you were on Twitter, you might have noticed that the Golden Globes released their winners on social media this year instead. And there's a whole saga going on behind the scenes. Essentially, the Golden Globes were canceled by Hollywood. They uh, have had issues over the years with some of the ethics of the group. Uh, They take gifts sometimes. They take travel to exotic locations. But the big impetus was a story in the L.A. Times last spring about the Golden Globes diversity stats. The HFPA had zero black members. It's about an 89, 90-member group. They had had some internal issues on diversity. And essentially, a group of publicists that represent actors and, and talent they decided that they were going to boycott the Golden Globes, and they have not liked they have not liked them for years. The HFPA does press conferences that they make the talent participate in, and some of the questions there have been objectionable in the past. The publicists really just don't like they don't control this group. 
So they decided to boycott and they got Netflix and Amazon and a couple others uh, of the big outlets to agree to sign on to this boycott. And ultimately, NBC said, we can't air a show if there's not going to be any talent there. So we're going to cancel the show for 2022, try to bring it back for 2023. And they gave the Globes basically a year to get their act together. Now, since then, they have done a lot. They've diversified their group. They are in the process of bringing in a new leader. They have booted out a bunch of the older problematic members. They have new bylaws, a bunch of things designed to clean up its act. The question now is whether this group of pretty militant publicists who don't like the show anyways and are using all of this controversy as a pretense to get rid of it, if they are going to let them back in, so to speak, or if NBC or the other networks are basically going to strong arm them. Because the Golden Globes is a powerful promotional platform for film and TV. It comes at the very beginning of the award season. It is a show that people like watching. You and I may not love you know, award shows in general, but there is an audience for these award shows, and they serve as a big boost, uh, both for box office, for the films, for the other awards like Oscars and Emmys. They get a, a nice round of attention, and it's a nice way for people to kind of see what the best that Hollywood has to offer is for that year. And that kind of went away when the show went away. So I think a lot of people hope that it'll be back. But for now, the Golden Globes are essentially canceled. And this doesn't feel like a, like a relic uh, of kind of a, a 1970s, 1980s era Hollywood. Like I'm sitting here, you know, as, as a Teddy, as a Theodore, as a millennial. And I'm just like, wh- like what? You know, I, I, I never watch this. Like You're confident people are going to miss this, or at least talent's going to miss this, even if regular people allegedly watch this well a couple things going on there first i'm not confident that people are going to miss these shows the ratings for these shows have been declining for years as people switch over to streaming services there hasn't been an effective award show in streaming yet where there's a real audience that will aggregate around something that is live and happening like that jury's out on whether that will even happen or whether these shows will just kind of go away but even in their diminished capacity, they do serve as a powerful promotional platform for the content. I mean, we saw it as recently as, you know, 2019. Also, key speeches, you know, key, key, key political moments. Real change happens on stage. <laughs> well, people mock it, but, you know, pe- things do enter the lexicon through these award shows. I mean, I can remember yeah, big sure. speeches that Oprah has given or when, you know, Frances McDormand got up at the Oscars and talked about inclusion writers and film and TV, that was a big moment where people started talking about this stuff. And, you know, over the years, there have been influential moments. And for these movies, they are key. Some of these movies will not get made if the award season goes away. And that's a huge, huge problem for the culture, I think. So, you know, there is an incentive to keep these shows going, even in their diminished capacity. And, you know, the Globes in particular, because they come at the beginning of the year, right before the MLK weekend, where, you know, it is proven that movies that get Golden Globes typically get a boost at the box office, and then they can ride that all the way through to the Oscars. And you see movies make $100, $200, 300000000 million in that period from that attention, and it gives people a reason to go see these movies. And these are sometimes difficult movies. They're not Marvel movies, typically. So, you know, there is a, there is a valuable role that these shows play, but Millennials, Gen Z... They are caring less and less about this stuff and don't know if it's going to ultimately end up going away when things go all the way to streaming. 
you know, we, we experience these speeches purely on TikTok, purely in the metaverse, um, paying no attention to the real uh, content happening on TV. Matt, I, I, I want to ask just to kind of when you think about where these award shows are going, you could see a universe, right? And, you, and you've written about this where I guess this is similar to the debate over the future of theaters, the debate over the future of Hollywood post-COVID, how much of this is permanent. Is, is there any real innovation you're seeing about a way to preserve what people like about the speeches, the history, the pomp and circumstance, and to kind of, not just for the Golden Globes, but for, frankly, the Grammys, Oscars, Tonys, anything, a way to spin it forward in, in a way that makes it more culturally relevant, you know, because now they're competing with, I mean, I'm joking about TikTok, but like they're competing with Sunday Night Football, right? They're competing with, with so many more demands on people's attention. I wonder, as, as you sit there in Hollywood, if you see anything innovative that makes this more relevant in 2040 than it was in, in 1980? The short answer is no. There's been almost no innovation in the award show space. And there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, there's an inherent tension going on because these things at their core are industry events. They Before television, the Oscars existed to honor the industry's best work they soon realized that that was a powerful program that they could put on television and people would watch. But these things, you know, the Oscars is a perfect example. Everybody knows the Oscars would be a more compelling television broadcast if they booted all the categories that nobody cares about off the show and just focused on actors, directors, best picture. Everybody knows that. The Grammys have basically done that. The Grammys you could do that only in, present you could a do couple that awards. What, half hour, hour? You could, you could well, you know. Or, or you could put in other content around it that would be more compelling to a, a viewer. The Grammys does this. They have a three-hour show, but they only give away a couple of awards, and most of it is collaborations and performances and great, you know, only on the Grammys moments. And they have smartly determined that people tune into these award shows to see celebrities and and especially in the Grammys case to see them perform. Now you can't obviously do a movie on stage when during the Oscars, but there are things Not that with you that can attitude. do. You should you <laughs> And and if you if you try different things and really shake if you try to shake up the format, I do think that there could be a way to rescue these shows, but it's pretty clear that the academy or a certain segment of the academy does not want that. So, Matt, moving on to another thing that I know we've been talking about privately. Here at Puck this week, I published a story about Mackenzie Scott, which for for folks in Hollywood um, is Amazon King. Jeff Bezos' ex-wife is probably how she needs to be identified for the Hollywood set. I don't think she's done anything in Hollywood, though. She, She has written a couple novels which have been popular, so she's sort of in the arts. I've been fascinated by Mackenzie for a while. For, for folks who don't know, she divorces from Jeff Bezos in this pretty crazy drama involving Saudi Arabia, Lauren Sanchez, Hollywood figure, the National Enquirer, people, you know, I'm saying some terms that are, are activating some some deep recesses of, of people's brains from 2018, 2019. So Mackenzie's had this pretty incredible transformation from this basically anonymous figure to being a cultural icon. I mean, she's now, uh, this, the stat I use is she's given away more money than the Gates Foundation and the Ford Foundation, which are the two biggest philanthropies in the United States, have combined. And she's given away more money at a faster clip than any living person ever has. And yet she remains this enigma to so many people. She's this hugely important 
philanthropist and I think has honestly become almost like a, a cultural touchstone for, for people who follow uh, the philanthropy world. And, and Mackenzie is, is totally an unknown figure. Like people don't really know who she is. She just shows up on Medium twice a year and announces, you know, uh, you want a car, you want a car, you want a car. And, and is, is, you know, no one really knows how this operation works. So I, I, we have a story up on Puck. Great piece. Best Puck piece ever published. Says the author. Says Theodore Schleifer here. It, that's Theodore. This is Teddy. So I, don't know, I, don't know, I, don't know, I don't know that guy's. Theodore writes about, about Mackenzie and sort of tries to break through uh, the, the news about how, how she operates. And I'm just... What, what to you as as an outsider in that world? What 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 do you want to know about about Mackenzie? I want to know everything about her. I want to know like because her whims and decisions impact millions and millions of dollars. And and I'm not in the philanthropy world. I know a lot of people who are, and they consider her the the woman behind the curtain. Like they don't know anything about her. They just know that if you can get in her good graces, you could potentially have a windfall out of nowhere. So, you know, that's a powerful position to be in. You know, she I, I, I know that when she was with Bezos, that she sort of had taken a step back and was kind of not in the you know, she was very involved in Amazon in the early years, but it kind of stepped, taken a step back with her kids. And the, the fact that she is this, you know, she's not like Lorene Jobs. Lorene Jobs is, a, you know, not not, you know, she's not a hugely public figure, but she's out there. You see her and you see, you know, she's doing things and you, you can kind of ascertain a business strategy for what she's investing in. With Mackenzie Bezos, it's almost like, at least from my perspective, uh, it's almost like she's she's a wild card. She, you never know what she's going to do. Totally. And, and and I think the scale here is uh, probably gets lost. Like you're like, oh, this is just another philanthropist, right? Like Loreen, whomever, uh, you know, Katzenberg, any of these Hollywood figures or media figures, Wall Street figures. Like Mackenzie is... You know, she's given away nine billion dollars plus over the last two years, probably 12, 13, 14, something in that neighborhood, which is just unheard of in the nonprofit world, you know, where people it's a very stock like the industry that I cover of kind of philanthropy. It's very stodgy. You know, people take a hell of a long time to figure out what they want to do. You know, they hire a bajillion consultants. You know, they study every issue from every which way. And really what people end up doing is on their deathbed or in their will. You know, they'll make some contribution to some like stodgy family foundation or they'll give it to a hospital or the Red Cross. And there's like a very traditional playbook that wealthy people follow where they essentially don't fuck up. That's that's like the number one rule is not to fuck up. And and then you have Mackenzie, who obviously is not on her deathbed. You know, she's in her mid 50s. And you're right. She just shows up on Medium and just, you know, showers the people with with millions of dollars and she can fund like an entire sector so much so that like I've heard some people when I was reporting the story almost worry about a scarlet letter effect where if McKenzie funds everyone in your industry and not you you screwed something up to not get uh uh not get so here's the, a question money bomb. Do you, yeah do you think she's doing this at such a fast clip as a middle finger to Jeff because he until recently is fam- you know he was famously not a huge philanthropist, especially during the rise of Amazon. Now I think he does a little bit more, but you know then they get divorced, and all of a sudden, as his stock is going through the the roof, she's giving away billions and billions of dollars. I, do you th- what personal dynamic do you think is at play here? 
Sure. So let's let's take let's take something like the giving pledge, right? Which is this sort of toothless, meaningless uh, promise to give away at least half your money. Um, we don't we don't have to we won't have to go into detail on why exactly that is, but it doesn't matter. It's symbolically important. So when Jeff and Mackenzie were married, um, you know, Jeff, the couple you sign it usually as a couple, the couple did not sign it. Um, and it and trust me, it's not they weren't asked or didn't know about it. Like Jeff said, he had some interview with Charlie Rose back in when Charlie Rose was was Charlie Rose and. 2010 or something where he said it was all bullshit. They get divorced and almost immediately Mackenzie signs it as an individual. Jeff still has not signed it. So clearly there was like, you know, when you have your own pocketbook, things are different. I, I do think that like this is a different situation than the other Seattle tech billionaire philanthropic power couple divorce, Bill and Melinda Gates, wh- where, you know, they've been Bill and Melinda had worked together on charitable work for, for 30 years. And I think lots of the drama around Bill and Melinda is actually a little bit manufactured um, in terms of kind of how it's going to affect the future of the world. But now you have Jeff, right, who ha- has gotten divorced and, and made a very different seemingly from from Lauren Sanchez's Instagram, which if people are not following um, is, is a real a real delight posts multiple times a day um, with Jeff wearing quite skin tight outfits, uh, really a, a top five Instagram account. I have, I happen to know Lauren Sanchez. Uh, she's, oh, she yeah? is very, yeah. I mean, I know, know her. I had lunch with her and we, we, when I was ed- editing Hollywood reporter, we did a story on her and her helicopter business. You know, she flies helicopters. Yes. Uh, believe me, it is all over, uh, my Instagram. Feed. <laughs> uh, very nice woman, very energetic, Spark plug, like Do you see she a is, journalist or journalist ish. She was a uh, yes. She was a, a morning news host in Los Angeles. Was on Channel Five, Channel Eleven. She is a, a local personality. Um, I also know Dylan Howard, the National Enquirer editor, who uh, it's Jeff Bezos, public enemy number one, and that whole scandal was crazy. Now remember, Lauren Sanchez was married to Patrick Whitesell who is the head of the William Morris Endeavor talent agency. And so she was a, you know, Hollywood figure even before Bezos. Uh, And and I know you're an NFL fan. Her first husband was Tony Gonzalez. Wow. uh, Yes. Legendary NFL tight end. Uh, also in the uh, Cal Football Hall of Fame for Bay Area sports enthusiasts. So, 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 so Jeff is her third extremely high. We're not talking about like, B-level celebrities here. I mean, I guess Patrick White's. I mean, but she, she has been in the public eye for a hell of a long time. Yes. Uh, and and does not shy away from that. You know, hence the Instagram shots of them looking like they're at a disco in 1978. It's beautiful. Anyway, Mackenzie is very different. <laughs> that, that was, that was a long Tony Gonzalez too. and his kid as well. Hangs out with the previous husband as well. Uh, I, I do not do not get the invite to that party. Um but Mackenzie is just a, a, such a different figure. You know, she was she went to Hotchkiss, Princeton. She, you know, sort of a mentee of Toni Morrison, which is kind of interesting. And uh, Mackenzie just cuts a, a, a different figure. And and in a lot of ways, you know, I, 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 I write in my piece in Puck that I think this is the most interesting experiment or grandest experiment in, in the nonprofit world. Certainly today, if not in recent history, look, I mean, if she if she ends up giving away all this money with basically, you know, very on the fly with with no strings attached, it's going to be a giant middle finger to the, you know, plotting bureaucracy, nonprofit industrial complex that it's just not necessary 
um, that if you give money away to nonprofits, they don't screw it up. And and, and look, like I, I also think though, for all for all that praise, some people in the media and in the punditry class have been, you know, offering Mackenzie very gushing coverage and saying this has been, you know, that by the fact she's giving away the money, it is de facto a success. Uh, that seems premature to me. Like we could easily see a scenario, right, where this flops big time. She gives money to some scammer or, or some nonprofit that spends it on, you know, embezzling or, you know, various financial crimes. Jury's still out. And, and I'm, 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 I'm sitting here, you know, standing atop history uh, yelling stop because some of the hoopla has become ridiculous. So let's, let's wait. My, my point is let's wait five years before we declare McKenzie the Nobel Peace Prize winner uh, of 2022. Maybe I, you know, that that was the most interesting part to me about your your piece you wrote this week is how she has kind of innovated or is shaking up the industrial complex around philanthropy. And you know, anytime there's an innovation in an industry, the people whose livelihoods are dedicated to the part that you're shaking up are going to push back. So I, I imagine people will be like, oh, she doesn't know what she's doing. You need, you know, you need to pay $5 million to a philanthropic consultancy to figure out how to spend your $2 billion. And if she's just not doing that, those people are going to push back. Um, but that happens in every industry when, when right, you know, right, right. apparatus around it. You know, as a reporter, I think it's always important. Like I, I, a lot of my beat is covering kind of campaign finance and the, the political industrial complex. As a reporter, I think it's very important for you to know the financial incentives of the people you're talking with, right? Like in, in politics, you know, there's all this strategy critique and, you know, co- public commentary that you need to think about, like, is this person being paid by the incumbent model? Um, like I'm thinking about this with television ads, you know, a lot of people in politics seem to think television ads are really, really important. And then, you know, you unpack the LLC a little bit, you, you know, look at the FEC report and you see like, oh shit, they're being paid a tremendous amount of money to, to say this. It's almost like they're on the payroll uh, of the industry. And I know I'm sure that's in Hollywood too, where you. Yeah. Everyone has an agenda. I mean, I'm sure if you interviewed, I'm sure if you interviewed bookstore owners in 1995 about amazon.com, they would have some opinions about how much people love going to the bookstore to feel the book they're about to purchase. I mean, everybody has an incentive there. It's just if you're a disruptor, you got to just do it and then uh, and then, you know, deal with those people after. You bet. All right, Matthew, thank you for coming by. Thank you, Theodore. Um, we're going to start a, a, a rival chipmunks outfit. I'm sure you got that a lot, didn't you, growing up? I, I, I am very familiar with every uh, <laughs> cultural reference involving my name. Teddy Ruxpin was apparently some bear. Apparently, allegedly. Apparently. So I'm told. What? That's like. And now I'm now I feel old. Now I feel old. Good. Good. Goodbye. All right. Thanks. Coming up, Dylan Byers comes by to tell us about Fox, MSNBC and CNN and what the future of cable news might look like in, say, five years. Stick around. Thanks again for listening to The Powers That Be and for supporting us here at Puck, our new company focused on the inside conversation, the plot that only the insiders know. The real story at the nexus of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. Puck is great, if I may say so myself. Matt thinks so. Dylan thinks so. Our scoops and analysis will help you understand some of the most important stuff happening today. And also, when you subscribe to Puck, you're supporting people like us, empowering us to do stuff that matters and just maybe to pave a new model for media. 
So check us out at puck.news. We're now joined on the pod by Dylan Byers, our resident chronicler of all things cable news. This is where Dylan uh, usually has to stomach Peter making some comment about his looks. But, you know, I, I, I we're changing things up. You know, he's got an off week. I'm going to I'm going to not do that. How, how do you how do Thank you feel you. about that? Are you, are you are you OK with that? I feel great about that. We should talk about Peter. We should just shit talk Peter for a little bit. Well, I think that's uh, probably a war crime, given he is uh, currently incapacitated. But let's let's talk about you have a story up on Unpuck this week about kind of the, the future of cable. And and I imagine you came up with this idea on Monday when you're sitting here watching CNN, Fox, and MSNBC make a couple of un, unrelated, uncoordinated, obviously, personnel moves that got you thinking about what that says about each of them, right? I mean, I, I assume you're always thinking about the future of cable news, but, you know, pers- personnel policy to some extent, right? Is that, is, is that is where like, that story came from? Yeah, and this is one of the classic failures of journalism, which is when three things happen within the span of a limited time frame. You're contractually <laughs> every, required to write about Every it, reporter actually. rises Fun up fact. to read the tea leaves. Yeah, and they'd like all of these, I mean, it could have been, these announcements could have happened stretched across the span of a week and they could have been different announcements and it just so happened that they coincided all on Monday morning. And, you know, I think, look, if you accept the premise that the media industry, that particular the, the news media industry specifically is changing a lot and that it's really changing on TV and that for all of the ink that has been spilled on the future of streaming and Netflix and Amazon and HBO Max, etc., that there has been relatively little attention or thought given to how the economics of cable news work in a streaming landscape and and how the three major networks make the jump and and what that jump forces them to do in terms of their value structure and 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 the reason for that is because you know we if you if you look at if you look at the reporting around cable news you will see a lot of discussion of ratings and the ratings races but the business of cable news is actually largely dependent on subscriber fees which come from the fact that cable news is is part of the cable bundle. And so that entire chunk of of the economic picture for cable companies, for cable news companies, it's not going to go away because they will continue to have a linear business for a long time, but they're going to lose a lot of that revenue as the overall linear uh, subscriber base begins to decline. And so the economics change and therefore the calculation that uh, media executives have to make as they think about what what the value proposition of their cable news channels is, is going to undergo something of a change as they think about their streaming outfits. And we're seeing that play out in three different strategies from the major three cable news networks. So let's, let's start with the most fun of these networks, which is, of course, Fox. Yes. So, so Jesse Waters, who, who I'll be honest, um, have not followed his career closely ever since 
um, the well, these, most of these uh, antics were were in Chinatown. I seem I seem to recall like you know a 2010 era, 2012 era. But if you told me this was like last week, I, I would believe it. Jesse Waters showing up, saying some racist stuff to Asian Americans, and you're telling me that he has now been promoted. Am I am I misunderstanding that? No, you're understanding that correctly. If you're if you are still. I, and uh, God bless you, Teddy, that you don't pay close attention to this stuff because it's it's not fun. Do well, I pay close attention to, to, to Fox? <laughs> I, I feel I feel like the Jesse Waters, uh, you know, story predates what I guess could be considered cancel culture. But who knows? Honestly, if, if you well, told actually, me this happened a year ago, I I would believe it. But he, so here's here's a different way of thinking about it. In the same way that that one of Donald Trump's great strengths was that not not that he didn't constantly put his foot in his mouth, but that he just had no shame about it. If you are at Fox News, you are able to get away with all sorts of things that w- w- would be career ending anywhere else because they're, they're, they're not punishable sins at Fox News. And so misinformation, bigotry, etc. Those things are tolerated because as long as it's not Bill O'Reilly level. Right? I mean I mean with with I mean Jesse Yeah, right. You Jesse. can't right. You can't you can't commit actual yes, right. You you but you can you can go on Fox News and say things that aren't true. You can say things that are um potentially bigoted. You can say things like that and that is uh very often rewarded at the network. Uh, the, the entire, you know, people, people who, who are more used to a mainstream media offering get really frustrated by this all the time. And they say, how is Fox News able to get away with that? And the answer is that Fox News, like CNN and like MSNBC, is just an entertainment channel that elected to fly under the banner of news and, and, and elected to pursue a news strategy as what it was offering. But they're, they're, they're by no means beholden to do anything that actually resembles what we would traditionally think of as news. So Jesse Waters is named to the 7 p.m. slot, uh, kind of early in prime time. He's hosting a show. You know, his mentor, Bill O'Reilly, no longer there. But you have, uh, you know, a, a younger version, uh, maybe a more even more provocative version of Bill O'Reilly at 7 p.m. What was your first reaction when you saw the news that Jesse Waters, of all people, was getting this coveted? slot on America's most popular cable channel. I mean on it like a a shrug and uh <laughs> and like you because just, because you just totally just, accepted it. We're jaded well no, but yeah, this is just this, this is this is this is the strategy which is Right. Tell me tell me what it tells us. It it tells us what the same thing that that promoting and tolerating Tucker Carlson uh tolerating Sean Hannity, tolerating Janine Pirro. It's a network that is catering to an audience of conservatives of the right and they have independent viewers. They have democratic viewers and they, they blow the competition out of the water when it comes to the amount of viewers that they have. But fundamentally that is saying like, look, the rest of the media, CNN, NBC, the New York times, the Washington post, every, every, everyone else uh, in media is not representing you. And you are the silent majority. And we are speaking for the, honest, hardworking, blue-collar American or the, you know, the, the real Jesse Waters America. totally is that, right? Of course. Yes. He's living a <laughs> hard travel. I think he was actually interviewed at a diner in Pittsburgh. I saw Jesse, Jesse Waters, just a lunch pail guy <laughs> represent, representing the blue-collar voter. Yeah, and it's not, it's not like it's, it's not like it's even necessarily a working class thing. It's just like a, it, it, it has no patience 
for anything that could be loosely affiliated with woke culture. It has no patience for progressivism. It's certainly its favorite thing to do, even more than championing conservative conservatives or conservative policies is to bash liberals and liberal policies. And so, you know, it's like not, it's not terribly surprising. It's not really huge news and it's, it's to be expected. And I think that there are a lot of question marks surrounding the varying strategies of NBC news and CNN as they head into streaming and what their, how they are going to bring added value to the streaming services of which they will one day be a part. So the NBC News offerings will be a part of the Peacock streaming service, and the CNN offering will be a part of a combined HBO Max Discovery Plus. But Fox News is in this very unique position where because it is so fervently right-wing and because it is seen as so toxic in the eyes of mainstream America that it has no place at one of these major streaming services that we usually talk about. And therefore, it is destined to live on its own either owned by the Murdochs or owned by someone they sell it to down the line, but it will be a standalone streaming offering. And therefore its strength is derived precisely from its ability to, to, to appeal to the right, to appeal to conservatives. And it need make no apologies for doing that. And so Jesse Waters, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, whoever you want, the more they rile up liberals and the more they anger mainstream sensitivities the better because that is yeah, that is yeah. very much the business model i mean to me as an outsider it, it seems like fox has the simplest strategy i mean it, it, it seems to know thyself quite well um if these yes. other two networks which we'll get to in a second are sort of muddling through the fog of what are we what is the future like from like a you know if you're mckinsey and you're showing up at these trying to help these people come up with strategy like the Fox case is pretty, pretty easy. Fox News knows exactly what it is. And that is a very powerful place to be. And and by the way, people often make the mistake of saying, you know, there's Fox News on the right and MSNBC on the left. The difference is that it's not just that Fox News is is partisan, because just being partisan, MSNBC is partisan. That alone is not a successful business strategy, because if you're MSNBC, there are a lot of progressives and liberals and independents out there who who don't watch MSNBC and don't feel the need to watch MSNBC and they get their news from the New York Times or, or they get it from the New Yorker and the Atlantic, whatever. If you are on the right, the position of Fox News is so powerful and slow, so influential. It is It is the bulwark. It is the bully pulpit of the right. And it is oftentimes setting the agenda for the right as much as it is responding to or championing the agenda sure. of the right. And that's a really powerful position. And so if I were to look at MSNBC and I were to say, okay, they're about to go into a streaming landscape and they don't have the full support of the behemoth that is NBC Universal, I would be really worried about them because that they, they can't stand up a business on that, especially if Rachel Maddow isn't part of that equation. She's the only one who really hits at the level that the Fox News personalities hit in terms of, of, of political and cultural influence. But with Fox News, it's like you have an entire political, you know, the political affiliation of a major American political party that basically lives on your channel. So when the time comes to go to streaming, provided 
you can maintain the influence among, you know, the folks who are now 55 and 60 as the influence that you have among folks who are now 70 or 75, you, you will, you will be able to have a very successful streaming business. I think based solely on the fact that you are, you are the home for Republicans and the right. Let's talk about MSNBC. You mentioned, uh, not equivalent to Fox. So their big news this week was Simone Sanders, the one-time aide to Bernie Sanders, one-time aide to Joe Biden, probably most memorably uh, a one-time bouncer, I think, to Jill Biden, I believe. <laughs> Famous moment when, uh, did she tackle, I think she did tackle that guy, right? Someone stormed the stage. Uh, oh, Simone Sanders. I totally forgot about that. I think you're right. That was, a, that, was that, that is the you know, <laughs> line one of the Simone Sanders uh, obit down the line. Good for her. Uh, famous, fa- famous. Dude, great for her. Line two, maybe. So she is now hosting a show on the weekends, right, on MSNBC, and it's also going to be involved with streaming. Tell me what hiring Simone Sanders tells us about the future of MSNBC. Well, so first, I, I have to set up with the caveat that when you're talking about N- NBC, you're t- things things get really complicated and murky because you have three sides to NBC, all of which have been NBC News, all of which have been given their own streaming outlets. You've got the the, the hard news side, not confusing is, at all, not confusing at all. The hard news side, which was born out of NBC News, but lives on MSNBC during the day, in the likes of all that daytime programming they have, where they're trying to deliver a, a more or less straight news product. Then you have the opinion side, which is basically MSNBC primetime. And these two sides have long sort of there's long been a tension between these two sides. Right. And so if you're if you're sitting on the news side of that equation and you're like, what is our what is the future of this company? And you see that they've hired a Democratic strategist. There's probably a part of you which is like, come on, are we journalists or are we a political arm? And then there's this third piece, which is the Today Show, which is probably the most powerful brand throughout the NBC News universe, but that its future in a streaming landscape is is very uncertain because it, it was really something that lived and thrived in in a world of linear television, particularly in the 90s and the early aughts. But anyway, not to go too far into the weeds, what the Simone Sanders thing tells me is that they are going to basically try to move the NBC News, MSNBC, and Today Show thing over to streaming and basically, until we get to this point, five or so years down the line, when the when when the what what you see on linear just starts living on streaming, they're going to try and offer a sort of second tier version of that. And so, NBC News Now is basically like their hard news offering. The choice on MSNBC, where the Simone Sanders show will go, is their opinion offering, and it's basically can feel at times like the AAA version. Of the linear offering, but triple A is not bad. I thought you were, I thought you were going to say single A, single maybe A, summer ball. Yeah, triple A is uh, flattering. That's a compliment. Clip that PR team. <laughs> it does. It does two things. One, it provides a placeholder until the days when the linear offering just fully moves over to streaming. And in the meantime, it says if you've cut the cord and you no longer have access to our linear offering. We hear we have we've got something else for you that's very similar that you might also like. The th- the thing that I don't get about this strategy is that the audience for the current linear offering of cable news or of M- say MSNBC is really small. 
And once Rachel Maddow leaves, it's going to be really, really small. So if you're just looking at the people who like that but didn't like it enough to keep their cable subscription, I'm not really sure how many of those people are going to need the streaming options outside of major news events. Election Day, January 6th, some, you know, something like that. And then this, so, so I don't totally get it. And meanwhile, you know, it's kind of, if you, if you actually spend time watching those streaming options that, you know, you definitely get the sense that you're not getting the main event, which is still happening over on Linear. And it makes the whole NBC project feel sort of stilted and cautious. Anyway, it's the, what, what is to, to just make the jump myself to CNN. What's interesting about CNN is they are refuting that logic and they are saying okay if the numbers are already really small for cnn outside of major events there's no we can't really just try and reproduce a watered down version of this on streaming so let's invest instead in programming that people are actually going to want to watch when there's not an election and there's not a bomb going off and let's go after things that are more like a cooking show with allison roman a travel show with Eva Longoria and stuff that's they'll have politics and they'll have hard news. And the news this week. Yeah. Right. The news this week is they now have Audie Cornish from NPR. And and so they will have the news piece of it, but they won't just be news 24 hours. They will they will be. And you saw this, by the way, with their linear thing back when they had Anthony Bourdain on Sunday nights. They're just giving more real estate on streaming to those kinds of projects and, you know, look, I think there's a, I think there's a large audience of people who didn't really need CNN most of the time, liked having it in case something really big was happening in the world, but found themselves tuning in every Sunday night to watch Anthony Bourdain. I was one of those people sure. for a while. And so now if you're telling me, oh, we have a travel show in Mexico and we have Allison Roman, who is, despite her past controversies, a phenomenal author of recipes and and just interesting personality oh and we by the way we have chris wallace who's actually like an interesting hard news journalist and he's going to be interviewing some big names all of a sudden you can begin to see how someone who has cut the cord is like well i don't need a watered down cable news offering but those programs sound really interesting and it wouldn't be bad to have access to cnn in the event that news breaks and then all of a sudden you're like okay this could work Right, right. You f- you feel like Fox is sort of in its own uh, own world for the reason we just talked about. But if you feel like you're a consumer and you're deciding what am I subscribing to on streaming, and you're looking at CNN and then the NBC offerings, you see a more compelling case for CNN. I do. I for two reasons. One, on its own merits in terms of what it's building, because it's going to have the news piece and the lifestyle travel other nonfiction type programming piece one two because you you have to judge all both of these services the cnn and the nbc in the context of the streaming networks of which they're going to be a part and if you are someone who say like you and me lives in la or san francisco or new york or washington or whatever a few years from now you're going to be looking at whatever david zaslav decides to call the combined HBO Max Discovery Plus, and you're going to say, oh, they have HBO, and they've got CNN. Well, that alone is a pretty good offering before you get into all the other stuff they've got across HBO Max and Discovery. Granted, and you know the NBC news offerings are free for now, but I guess what I'm saying is 
just as like a educated liberal consumer who lives in one of these urban cities and and and, and likes shows like Succession and is and writes for Puck, <laughs> some a service that is giving me CNN along with like Allison Roman and Eva Longoria plus HBO. Plus all that other stuff that HBO Max and Discovery has. It's a pretty good it's deal. Just, it's a pretty good deal. And it's something I'd be willing to pay for. And then, by the way, CNN, unlike NBC News, is still the network that actually it's like the one truly global news network. So when something really big happens in the world, like the Arab Spring, NBC News is much or sorry, CNN is much more valuable than NBC News. So, I, you know, so I guess the one thing that NBC News, two things that NBC News have, has going for it. One is that it's free, but ad supported. For now, right? And we, for we, now. We don't, we, don't, we don't know that's always going to be. We don't know that's yeah. always going to be the case. Right? Yeah. And then if you're somebody who really just needs to turn on your TV and have liberal and progressive talking heads, then I guess I see the case for going with Peacock over HBO Max Discovery. Sure. I mean, I don't, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if that is that small uh, a group of people. I mean, there are um, some MSNBC addicts who will love this to death, but that seems yeah, like a smaller number of people than people that love Ava Longoria to death. Yeah, well, it's just a small. It's just, and, and again, like I don't. They're competing with a lot of people, right? And and what's to stop the New York Times from from hiring a great, you know, taking one of their great progressive columnists and doing like a weekly building a weekly video series around them. And maybe that gives some progressives their fix. I just think it's just not as sure of a business as it is for Fox news because Fox news really owns the right. Yes. I was, um, when we were talking about Fox a moment ago, I'm sure you, I'm sure you saw the clip of, of Tucker Carlson and Ted Cruz. Um, you were, you were talking a moment ago about just how Fox is the, is, is the antenna and that politicians have to prove themselves to be uh, subservient to the Fox ecosystem. I was, very humored. Uh, this this former Ted Cruz embed uh, was very humored to see Cruz totally eating it um, when talking with Tucker about whether or not January 6th was a terrorist attack or not. Fox is Fox. There's only one Fox. There's only one Fox. That is their greatest strength. Thanks so much for coming by. Thank you, Teddy. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, this is the official and only podcast of Puck. There are a lot of impersonators out there, but only except The Powers That Be. We'd like to thank Eric Johnson of lightningpod.fm, our partner, for support. And thanks, too, to Liz Goff and Ben Landy for the production help. I'm Teddy Schleifer. Peter will allegedly, probably, definitely be back next week. Take care. <laughs>